0: Please pray with me. Dear Lord, as we come to your word at this time, uh, grateful. I pray that we would be enlightened, we would be enriched, we would be encouraged, and most of all, that Christ would be exalted uh, through the preaching and through the listening of your word. How precious it is to us, God. Thank you for it. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Our topic, as we're now in Mark chapter 10, for today is is marriage. And we're going to take two weeks uh, for this, and today we'll just kind of be laying down some groundwork. At this point in American history, we've been told many lies and falsehoods about this sacred institution. And so it's going to take a, a bit of a lengthier intro today, let me just say that from the start. Um, as we make our way to the text, and uh, even the, the text we're going to treat a, a little bit different today, as we lay some foundations. And so um, next week we're going to kind of go through the, the text, um, just kind of in a, a little bit more of a normal fashion. But today the topic is, is marriage, and we really want to know what what we what we believe. So let me start by by sharing that in 2004. Pew Research polls showed that 60% of Americans were opposed to same-sex marriage. 60% were opposed. That means 40% were for. So 2004. Um, Last year, 2021, support for gay marriage is at 70% for the first time. And listen to this. A majority of Republicans now support same-sex marriage, 55%. Even support among older adults has reached close to the 60% mark. That's what it was at large back in 2004. The U.S. Supreme Court legalized same-sex marriage on June 26, 2015. It was celebrated as a, a great day for the homosexual community, but also for the transgender community as well. Because the highest court in the land had proclaimed the right to marry to be gender blind. Since then, since 2015, anyone can marry in any of the 50 states regardless of gender. And also regardless of whether someone's gender is recognized by officials in the state where they live. So uh, this may or may not be news to, to some of us here, but... It should be quite stunning that we've fallen so far as a society to the point where the concept of homosexual and or transgender people being married just seems normal and acceptable and by the majority of the population now even favored. Yes, it is Romans 1 being played out. And maybe it's helpful to try to understand how something like this could happen. So Urban Lutzer in his good book called we will not be silenced he says quote most americans probably would not agree with the normalization of homosexual relationships unless it was sold as a noble cause the advocates had to find a way to say that they were taking the high moral ground and of course the answer was to link the cause of same-sex marriage to what to civil rights By reminding people of the great struggles of black Americans for equal rights, they connected one cause to the other. Today, it's transgenderism that is being sold as a civil right. In the excellent book, When Harry Became Sally, which exposes the agenda of the transgender movement, author Ryan Anderson writes this, Political and cultural elites have tried to shut down the discussion before it starts, by imposing a politically correct orthodoxy on the nation, an ideology in which gender identity is both a subjective matter and a category meriting civil rights protection. So civil rights protection is required. The right for a man to identify as a woman or vice versa is equated with black Americans' fight for freedom back in the day. Thus, the fight for marriage equality, end quote. This has sadly infiltrated into Christianity at large and into the church. Again, all in the name of noble causes like justice and equality and compassion. And the greatest of them all, love, love. Detaching from reality under the banner of love enables people to normalize what is truly bizarre and unnatural. Lucer continues explaining about um, a man named Rob Bell. I don't know if anybody has heard of Rob Bell. But uh, back in the day, the 2000s to 2011, um, he was a one-time megachurch pastor, an author. And now he's a, a spiritual guru and podcaster. Um, his slogan was, we need more love, not less. And this was in defense of same-sex marriage. His most famous and controversial book was called Love Wins. Love wins. And in the book, it describes this story, quote, how he abandoned historic Christianity for what he believes is a more loving, tolerant, and accepting God. According to Bell, when love wins, homosexuals will have the right to marry one another, and hell will be redefined as, quote, the terrible evil that comes from secrets hidden deep within our hearts, end quote. So when love wins, The gates of heaven are open to a much wider audience than just those who believe in Christ. And what a glorious day for all of us when love wins. And this is what he's written. After he left the pastorate, he said this. Some people are gay, and you're our brothers, and you're our sisters, and we love you. We love you. Gay people are passionate disciples of Jesus, just like I'm trying to be. So let's all get together and try to do something about the truly big problems in our world. So obviously there's a a very evil thing happening in our culture that we as God's people must be aware of. This is part of Satan's parading around as a, as an angel of light. It's out there in the world and it always makes its way into the church. It makes evil seem good and good seem evil. And its ways are varied and numerous, but one of the most subtle tactics it it uses is to clothe something that's wicked and, and, and present it as something that's noble and virtuous. Isaiah 520 says, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Luther again, he says, any cause can appear legitimate if it is tied to some noble idea. Even evil, if packaged correctly, can appear to be good, and good can be packaged as evil. So he goes on to cite what Hitler and Nazi Germany did in their presentation of Jewish people, and um, just painting a picture of them as the enemy. And once they were portrayed and believed to be a hated enemy, then genocide and all the, the brutalities uh, of, of wickedness that happened there uh, seemed justified and was for the noble goal of what? It's for the good of the people. It's for the good of the nation. And so he likens that to uh, what's being packaged today um, as social justice, as equality for all, as reproductive justice. We're talking about abortion. And going back to the LGBTQ thing, um, Rob Bell, when he is asked about this in a 2013 interview at Grace Cathedral in San Francisco, he says, quote, I am for marriage. I am for fidelity. I am for love, whether it's a man and a woman, a woman and a woman, a man and a man. And I think the ship has sailed. This is the world we are living in and we need to affirm people wherever they go. Wherever they are, end quote. So, affirm. Affirmation. Affirmation. Okay, this is the culture's concept of love. In fact, it's their, it's their teaching. It's their doctrine of love. Affirm. People who've never heard of the name Rob Bell have bought into this. Okay, love is all affirmation. It's to affirm. It's not about transformation, it's about affirmation. In other words, everyone must affirm my reality. Otherwise, you hate me. So what is the next seemingly preposterous desecration of traditional biblical marriage? Okay, believe it or not, people are already starting discussions about thruples. Okay, this is a relationship between three people, any combination. Okay, and if three isn't enough, there's polyamory. Okay, that's what's next. This is multiple relationships with significant others at the same time, okay, so-called open marriages. Before we know it, pedophilia. That'll be the, the next abomination that needs to be affirmed. Okay, because people who are attracted to children are just born that way. And so they're entitled to equal rights, like everyone else. As crazy and unlikely as that sounds, uh, I want you to remember, hey, less than a generation ago, people thought the same thing simply about same-sex marriage. Hey, oh, that, that'll never happen. That'll never happen in my lifetime. That's, that's, that's crazy. Okay, but this is where we find ourselves in the world today. So as I say all that, folks, as part of this introduction, uh, please don't get me wrong. Uh, This is not a doomsday sermon. (laughs) I'm not going to preach all is lost and doom and gloom and the whole world is going to pot, so let's just uh, all drown our sorrows and be done with it. No, to be sure also, I'm not preaching that the LGBTQ people are our enemies. I I want us to be clear uh, from the onset here that uh, this is actually a great time to be alive. And this is a great time for our young people. To be alive. This is our time, Christians, both old and young. Why do I say that? Because this is the time for the light to shine the brightest, right? When the days are darkest is when the light shines forth the brightest. And I want us to remember a certain day, uh, roughly 2,000 years ago. Uh, It was a Friday, and uh, the skies literally went dark during those hours of the most depraved event in all of history, when twisted and evil and despicable men nailed the Son of God on a cross, crucifying him to death, and that was the, the darkest and bleakest day of all time. And yet, it was then that the love of God shone forth the brightest. And out of Jesus Christ's suffering came the most marvelous light and life As he rose from the grave three days later. So God has made us for such a time as this, brothers and sisters in Christ. And he made our children and our grandchildren for such a time as this. We're all here to shine the light in such a dark culture. So as we think about this, let it settle into our hearts, secondly, that LGBTQ people are not our enemies. They are part of our mission field, as are those who promote their cause. Because not everybody is LGBTQ, but they're with the cause, because it's so noble, right? Don't make enemies out of those who God calls us to share Christ and the gospel with. Hey, let us remember, always, keep close to your hearts, but God demonstrated his own love toward us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So with that, let's also remember that loving them does not mean that we are to compromise or to cave on what God's word clearly states. And that's part of the problem, right? The church is not informed, the church is not taught, the church is not educated, even though, as Dave was praying, all scripture is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work, part of which is to share the gospel. The church has not stood firmly on God's word when it comes to the issue of marriage, and the damage is evident. It started before all, all of this stuff. right? It's, it, we, we, we compromised on, on sexual immorality and purity and fornication. And then the church caved on dealing with divorce, which we're going to talk a little bit more about next week. And then it started to accept and affirm homosexuality. And soon it'll be open to transgenderism and the rest. So my point in pointing that out again is, is not to hate on any of these people or hate on a certain category of people. God doesn't hate homosexuals, transgenders. God doesn't hate divorced people, per se, but he does hate divorce. He does hate homosexuality. Adultery and all forms of perversion and immorality are absolute abominations to him. So we as Christians are to love what God loves and hate what God hates. Jesus loved sinners and told them the truth. We are to love sinners and tell them the truth. Regarding marriage, I want us as Christians to know and embrace the truth of what God reveals about it. We should not be known only by what we are against. whether it's homosexuality or transgenderism or LBGTQ, same-sex marriage, all the rest. But we should be known also by what we are for. And for that to happen, we need to be clear in our own minds and hearts about marriage. What is the biblical view of marriage? And we're not going to be able to cover it all today. I'm just laying down the groundwork once again. So Mark chapter 10, our sermon title for this week and next is Marriage According to Jesus, and today is part one. And I'm going to read the text uh, just to have it in our minds, and we're just going to just hone in on a, a couple of those verses. But um, if you would stand with me, if you can, let's read. Well, I'll read Mark chapter 10, verses 1 through 12. And the Lord is teaching about the preciousness of marriage, and he explains the sinfulness of divorce here. uh, Mark 10, verses 1 through 12. Getting up, he went from there to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan. Crowds gathered around him again, and according to his custom, he once more began to teach them. Some Pharisees came up to Jesus, testing him, and began to question him whether it was lawful for a man to divorce a wife. And he answered and said to them, what did Moses command you? They said, Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. But Jesus said to them, because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. In the house, the disciples began questioning him about this again. And he said to them, Whoever divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery against her. And if she herself divorces her husband and marries another man, she is committing adultery. Please be seated. So, Just setting some foundations this morning, and our focus is going to be verses 6 through 8, and uh, we're going to go through a, a bunch of other scriptures along the way. But this is for us to get a biblical understanding of what marriage is, and this is what we as Christians love and embrace and offer to a lost, dark world for the glory of God. Okay? So that's where we're going this morning, and uh, I want to give credit to Ali Stuckey for the um, alliterative points which are to come and kind of needed to be tweaked a little bit, um, but uh, helpful, helpful. Biblical marriage, okay, why we are for this, why we are for this. The first thing is, is this. Biblical marriage is rooted in creation. It's rooted in creation, and this is our main verses for today, verses 6 through 8, what Jesus says. Um, again he says, but from the beginning of creation God made the male and female. For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother, and the two shall become one flesh. Right? So so marriage is rooted in creation. He says, but from the beginning, from the beginning of creation. Right? Then he quotes Genesis one twenty-seven and Genesis two twenty-four. Okay? So Genesis two twenty-four is just a, a rewind back to day six, right? And so God made them. So we should pause there just for a moment to understand that God is the creator and He is therefore um, the author, and with being the author comes authority. So He owns it all. He made everything. He is the authority over the subject and on the subject. And He knows how it's supposed to run, how it's supposed to work, how it's supposed to flourish. I was supposed to prosper, and that's the very first thing. Not only did he make them, but it says God made them male and female. And unfortunately, we just need to spend even a little bit of time on this today, to say that there are only two biological genders and sexes. Okay, this is male and female. XX chromosomes, female. Female. XY chromosomes, male. To define a woman, which some people today are having a hard time doing. Hey, an adult female human being. How about that? Define female. Hey, a female person. Hey, a woman or a girl. Hey, this is uh, an individual of the sex, of the gender, capable of bearing young or producing eggs. Hey, it's not that complicated don't have to be a scientist to be able to understand and know that so we have two genders not three not 13 not 30 something as some highly educated yet deeply ignorant people are teaching there's male and female now are there very rare exceptions defects outliers yes and why is that that would be due to the fall when sin entered into the world, what was perfect became imperfect in the Garden of Eden there. And various defects and imperfections started to happen over time. All sorts of chromosomal abnormalities and diseases exist. Okay, outside of this one that we're talking about, such as Down syndrome, cystic fibrosis, hemophilia, many types of cancer, some forms of deafness, muscular dystrophy... Yeah, but it includes also the 0.05 to 0.2% of the population who have chromosomal disparities, okay, something other than straight XX, straight XY chromosomes. And talking to a, a UCLA student, okay, this was roughly 10 years ago, um, someone I just was ministering to, they were a student at UCLA, they were taught that it was close to 10% of people who had this kind of chromosomal disparities. So not to... It's actually 0.05 to 0.2% of the population. So not to belabor the issue here, but helpful. From uh, Michael Brown, he says, quote, The great enemy of the radical transgender movement is science. Biological realities can be stubborn, and no amount of human tampering can change those realities. And of course, we want to see people freed from their internal pain. We want to see them find resolution for the emotional torment they're experiencing. But no amount of compassion can change biological and chromosomal realities. End quote. There's a medical doctor named Will Malone who says, You can't be born in the wrong body. It's our minds that need treatment, not our sex. The mental health services will look back at this episode in American history as another dark chapter in the treatment of people with psychological difficulties, end quote. So what's the point, folks? The point is this. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. And for this reason, for that reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and the two shall become one flesh. A marriage, according to the Bible, is between one man and one woman. Period. Adam and Eve, not Adam and Steve. Not two men, not two women. The very first people that God created were a man and a woman. Ish, Isha. He created the woman for the companionship of the man. The divine institution of marriage is rooted in the very creation. Okay, Genesis 2 verse 18. A few verses before 24 there. Then the Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make him a helper suitable for him. God created woman to be a helpmate to the man in a a complementary relationship with specific roles designed by the Creator. Paul affirms this in the New Testament. 1 Corinthians 11, verses 8 and 9 for man does not originate from woman, but woman from man. For indeed, man was not created for the woman's sake, but woman for the man's sake. So marriage then is the union of two members of the opposite sex who have made a covenant to each other in holy matrimony. It's very deep and profound, and it's, yet it's very simple. Verse 7. Of Mark 10. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother. I just want to briefly say, in other words, once married, couples, the priority in relationship has changed. Hey, leaving your your father and mother doesn't mean you abandon the entire parent-child relationship. It doesn't mean cutting off contact with your parents, hey, but it does mean breaking away from dependence on your parents. And your priority relationship now is on your wife, your husband the new family that has been established. And so verse 8, Jesus says, And the two shall become one flesh. And um, going back to Genesis chapter 2 again. Genesis 2, verses 22 and 23. It says, The Lord God fashioned into a woman... The rib which he had taken from the man and brought her to the man. The man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Okay, just to, to say that God did not make Eve out of the dust of the ground. And okay, he made Eve from the rib of Adam. Okay, so her very substance was made from the man instead of from the ground. They were quite literally one flesh. And every marriage after that was to reflect that oneness, that marital union that our first parents had. Two becoming one speaks of permanence, which God designed in marriage and designed marriage to be. Next Sunday, we're going to look at some very exceptional instances when we explain divorce. But Jesus says... So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. This is where the expression, till death do us part, came from. That one flesh union was not to be torn apart by anything but death. And there's a lot more we could say about that, but we need to get to our next point. Because as we've seen, marriage is rooted in creation, and the truth of this is reiterated throughout Scripture and by Jesus himself. It's reiterated throughout Scripture and by Jesus himself. We're seeing this in Mark chapter 10. By the way, the parallel passage of Mark 10 is Matthew 19, verses 1 through 12. And Matthew records Jesus saying the same thing. But just some Old Testament scriptures, uh, when you think about biblical marriage... Um, and, and God's view of marriage, the Song of Solomon. Hey, the whole book is about the purity of marital affection and romance, Hey, the loveliness of marriage. And, of course, this was King Solomon, and so most likely his, his first wife, um, before the, the sin of 699 others afterwards. But this dramatic, true-to-life love song, which is the Song of Solomon, Captures the beauty and pleasures of the one man, one woman union, and it's instructive. It's 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 teaching. Um, it's teaching against both ascetic abstinence on the one hand, and lustful perversion on the other. Okay, we should understand the that wonderful book of poetry and wisdom rightly. Speaking of the book of Proverbs, there's wisdom and encouragement for husbands and wives throughout it. For example, Proverbs 18 verse 22, "He who finds a wife finds a good thing. He, she, right? finds a good thing. Proverbs 19:14: "House and wealth are an inheritance from fathers, but a prudent wife is from the Lord." Proverbs 31 is the, the famous, well-known example of a godly wife. And of course, we always say that if you want a Proverbs 31 woman, Men, you better be a Proverbs 1 through 30 man. And so there's commands and precepts and wisdom and encouragement. Uh, as you consider the book of Proverbs, even for children to obey and listen to and take heed and honor their father and mother. We'll get to that a little bit more in a moment. But jumping ahead to the New Testament, just a few scriptures. First Corinthians chapter 7. Okay, the entire chapter, Paul gives instructions on the Christian marriage relationship. Okay, assuming that it's between one man and one woman. First Corinthians eleven, verses eight and nine, I already mentioned that. You can add to that verses eleven and twelve, same chapter, first Corinthians eleven. Um, the commands to husbands and wives, part of which was read during our scripture reading this morning, Ephesians chapter five, verses twenty two to thirty three. Uh, you can go to Colossians three as well and first Peter three, um, commands that are given to husbands and to wives. For elders, in First Timothy three verse two, okay, uh, qualifications for elders, you must be a one woman, the husband of one wife. That goes for deacons as well. First Timothy three verse twelve, and the other one to elders is Titus one verse six., okay, so there's all these scriptures that marriage according to God, between one man and one wife, one husband, one wife. It's reiterated throughout the scriptures indirectly, but also worth of our worthy of our consideration. I already mentioned it. But um, Exodus 20, verse 12, which is the fifth commandment, says, honor your father and your mother, that your days may be prolonged in the land which the Lord, your God has given you. Your your Lord, your God gives you. And you put that together with New Testament, Ephesians six, verse two. And the command there to children is honor your father and mother. Paul referencing the fifth out of the Ten Commandments. He says, which is the first commandment with a promise? Those verses say your father and your mother. That is what constitutes the family. And it starts with a husband and a wife who become a father and mother to their children. So the very foundation and building block of society. In fact, the entire world begins with a male and female leaving their own parents cleaving with a member of the opposite sex, and weaving together so as to produce offspring by which the family is blessed and multiplies. And this is to be done in the context of God's design, which is marriage. So back to Mark chapter 10. And Jesus repeats this. He repeats this. He quotes it. He refers to Genesis 1, Genesis 2. He is affirming many things there in Mark 10, verses 6 through 8 including the following facts, and we've been already over it, but I'll say it again. One, creation by God, and not evolution in any way, shape, or form, but simple creation by God. Number two, the historicity of Adam and Eve as two real-life, physical people who God made first. The historicity of Adam and Eve, and lastly, what we're talking about this morning, the creation of marriage. Jesus defines marriage by what Genesis 2 said. Quote, and the two shall become one flesh. Then Jesus says, so they are no longer two, but one flesh. And God made marriage. It's right there. He created it once again from the very beginning. And after, he said it was very good. God defines what marriage is, and not the Supreme Court, the United States law and definition of what marriage is goes against what God's law and definition of what marriage is. Jesus makes it clear that the word they there, so they, in Genesis 2.24, it means the two, the two, repeating that one man and one woman is the biblical norm. Okay, so, so marriage is not a product of societal norms, if some, as, as some have argued, or just cultural practice. As others have said, marriage came down from God, and he defined it for us. He has a right to that. He owns it. Good old J.C. Ryle, he said this in the 1800s, quote, The marriage relation lies at the very root of the social system of nations. The nearer a nation's laws about marriage approach to the law of Christ, the higher has the moral tone of that nation, Always proved to be, end quote. So I just want to flesh out the phrase, one flesh, uh, just a little bit more for us here. Hey, it's, it's the un- uniqueness of, of marriage math. Hey, marriage arithmetic is that one plus one equals one. And it's the only time that's true. And uh, one flesh, it, there's a physical component to that, intimacy, oneness. It emphasizes the the sexual union, 1 Corinthians 6, 16. But the sexual union is always more than just physical. And beyond, and that's kind of Paul's point in 1 Corinthians 6, beyond the physical, there's relational and emotional oneness as well. Being one flesh is the total giving of oneself to the other person. Wayne Mack puts it this way, biblical counselor Wayne Mack, Quote, marriage is a total commitment and a total sharing of the total person with another person until death, end quote. And so we've, we've kind of presented uh, many definitions of, of biblical marriage, and that's another good one. Okay, husbands and wives are no longer two, but one flesh. Everything in life is shared in a growing level of intimacy and unity in okay, not only their bodies, but their possessions, their ideas, Their insights, abilities, problems, successes, failures, trials, we, we go through it all together as one. In short, one flesh, hey, this, this weaving, symbolizes complete oneness in all aspects of life. Hey, it's, it's bearing all, B-A-R-I-N-G, and sharing all. It's also the B-E-A-R-I-N-G, too. But, um, in this context, bearing all, and sharing all. A quick, by the way, okay, that level uh, and, and of, of um, closeness and of intimacy and unity, it doesn't mean, you young folks, that you become the same person as your spouse. Okay, it doesn't mean uniformity. But it is such a oneness that all of your differences, which there's differences in personality, differences in wiring, differences in preferences, differences in habits, all those things will not break the unity in marriage, which is to be total. So another way to put marriage biblically, an intimate and complementing union between a man and a woman in which the two become one physically and relationally in the whole of life. Okay, so we've, we've said it a, a few different ways. I'll say that one more time. An intimate and complementing union between a man and a woman in which the two become one, physically and relationally, in the whole of life. So, we have learned, or have been reminded, that biblical marriage is rooted in creation. It's reiterated throughout the Bible. It's repeated by Jesus himself. Lastly, it reflects Christ's relationship with the church. It reflects Christ's relationship with the church. And Ephesians 5, once again, is where that's most clearly and fully explained. And I'm not going to read the whole passage again since it was already read, but let me just read a few verses to remind us. Ephesians 5 Verses 22, and I'm going to read to 26 here. Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church, he himself being the Savior of the body. But as the church is subject to Christ, so also the wives ought to be to their husbands in everything. Verse 25 says, Husbands, Love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her so that he might sanctify her having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. And uh, dropping down to verse 31, Paul also quotes Genesis, right? For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and shall be joined to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. And this mystery is great. This mystery is deep. This mystery is profound. And he says, but I'm speaking with reference to Christ and the church. I'm saying this refers to Christ and the church. So marriage is to be a display of the gospel of Christ. See, there's there's a number of different ways that the Bible describes the believer's relationship with the Lord. It talks about Christ being the head, and we believers are his body, just mentioned in Ephesians. It says that Christ is the king. And believers are the citizens of his kingdom. Christ called himself the vine, and his followers are the branches. He's the shepherd, believers the sheep. And one of the most beautiful and descriptive metaphors of this relationship is that of Christ as the husband and believers his wife. Ephesians 5 tells us that marriage is a profound mystery which reflects that relationship one author goes so far as to say, quote, From before time began, God had marriage on his mind. He was preparing a bride for his son, whom he would marry forever. It would take the crucifixion and resurrection of the groom to bring this marriage to pass. Just think of it. God created the most intimate human relationship, marriage, to speak of the intimacy of his relationship with his church. God created that institution to reflect or mirror forth this eternal union. In other words, human marriage exists to point men and angels to the eternal marriage of Christ and his church, end quote. That's pretty stunning, isn't it? It's amazing. What made that divine marriage possible? The answer? The gospel of Christ. That Jesus Christ is the Savior come to rescue sinners who could not, would not save themselves. God, in fact, loved the world in such a way as to give His own Son as the sacrifice for their sins. Jesus' love was so great that He willingly, voluntarily went to be hung on a cross to pay the penalty for the sins of the world. And no one else but Jesus has bore the wrath of God against sin for us. No one in the history of the world has ever made that claim no one else has claimed to die for the sins that man committed against God. He gave himself up, laid down his life so that all who repent of their sin and trust in him alone would receive the free gift of salvation. So the Bible tells us that human marriage exists to put that very gospel on display. It is not only a physical, practical aspect of marriage, but also this spiritual reality. The institution of marriage is glorious because part of its purpose is, is to help, help us see and understand the gospel. It's a portrait. It's a picture of the relationship between Christ, the groom, and the church, his beloved bride. So as Ephesians so clearly and straightforwardly said, as Christ, as the husband loves his wife, as Christ loves his church, sacrificially unconditionally as the wife joyfully submits to her husband like the Christ like the church submits to Christ as her head the world the world is is pointed to see the beauty and the glory and the reality of the gospel so i want to start to wrap up here with uh, a few closing applications okay, a few closing applications and can Never apply everything for everybody, but I just want to offer a few, all right? So for those who are single and content to remain single, this is God's word for you today. Praise God, hey, praise God and use that gift of singleness to give undistracted service and devotion to the Lord. First Corinthians seven verses thirty two. And 34 to 35 says this. One who is unmarried is concerned about the things of the Lord, how he may please the Lord. The woman who is unmarried and the virgin is concerned about the things of the Lord, that she may be holy both in body and spirit. And this I say for your own benefit, not to put a restraint upon you, but to promote what is appropriate and to secure undistracted devotion to the Lord. 1 Corinthians 7, 32, 34 to 35. What a high and beautiful and glorious calling. And for those who are, who are single but desire marriage, okay, once again, praise the Lord for He is good and faithful. And so He would have you to continue to grow in Christ-likeness and in purity and be praying as you look for someone who is committed to do the same. Hey, look for, for folks, look for men and women who are, are pursuing Christlikeness and purity just as you would be. And should God grant your desire, your lifelong relationship must be centered on Jesus so that your future marriage relationship will actually reflect the picture of Christ and his church to the world. For those who are married to an unbeliever, praise God for saving you and praise God for giving you your spouse. And his word says that you are to strive to win your spouse by your godly character and behavior. Okay, 1 Peter 3, verses 1 through 6. And that's specific to wives, but the principle would apply to husbands as well, husbands with unbelieving wives. For those who are married, and believers. He prays the Lord for such amazing grace. And you might consider just a few questions as you do that. A few questions. First one is, are you growing in deeper companionship with your spouse these days? Sometimes the years go by, and the months go by, and the decades go by, and we start to get a little complacent. Are you growing in deeper companionship with your spouse these days? Are you striving to fulfill God's roles for you for you as a husband, leader, lover, learner, and as a wife, honorer, helper, homemaker? Okay, if I can summarize those very quickly. Last question. Is your marriage a reflection of Christ's relationship to the church that we've been talking about? displaying the gospel to a lost world. Final application, and this, this is for all of us, and I want us to be reminded once again today that man wants to replace God's order. A sinful man wants to replace God's order and God's absolutes. And he wants to do it with his own way of things and own order and own absolutes. That's always been the case, and this is the case as we've seen with His divine, sacred institute of marriage. Sinners demand autonomy, and that was that was literally what the crowds were chanting during the uh, the Roe versus Wade protest in Washington D.C. this past month. Autonomy, autonomy, autonomy. But as one theologian said, God is the one who sets the order. He defines the order of things. He has and owns the rights to creation. No one can unmake what God has made. God has made it, spoken over it, and God owns it. This applies to marriage, right, and everything. No one can take away God's seal. God is the one who sets the terms, not man. He has the deed and title to the cosmos. And Jesus Christ, the Lamb who died on the cross for man's sins and who rose from the grave, He's the only one who can open that seal. He's got it in his back pocket, so to speak. And he's going to return. And when he does, he's going to make all things right again. And uh, someone once said that the Bible begins with a marriage and it ends with a marriage. And uh, where are they getting that? Well, Revelation 21, verses 1 and 2 says this. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there is no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And so this is just speaking of the, the bride coming together with the groom, with Christ, everything being consummated and just um, that beautiful picture. But until then, dear brothers and sisters in Christ, we fight the good fight of faith. With our goal, with the goal of our instruction being what? Love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. All for the glory of our great God. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank you for giving it to us straight and clear and, and in a way that we can, we can understand it and embrace it. Thank you, Lord, for teaching about the the preciousness of the marriage relationship. Uh, even as we've just touched on certain foundations and roots this morning, uh, thank you for your your word, which is pure and perfect, and sanctifying and encouraging. I pray, Lord, that uh, these reminders and these truths and these things that we've learned this this morning from From your word has 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 helped us helped our souls and just uh refreshed us god as we consider all the things that are being said and taught out there help us god to be lights. help us to be salt and light in this earth help us to shine forth help us to be that purifying and and preserving influence uh, uh to those all around us um god for for you are worthy of of our lives being invested because of the love of Christ, which compels us. Thank you that we can be empowered and strengthened to no longer live just for ourselves, but for him who died and rose again on our behalf. And it's in Christ's strong and precious name we pray. Amen.